the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Get podcasts there as you can on iTunes and Spotify. Social media at Dan Prof Show and at Dan Prof, including on Parlor, and we begin on this edition with uh, this guy who plays a governor on TV. He's named Andrew Cuomo. He's out of New York. He is uh, basking in the glow of winning an international Emmy, and he had a press conference yesterday to talk about it. When I first heard, uh, I was I was flattered by it. Uh, but then I looked into it a little bit. Uh, Oprah Winfrey won it. Steven Spielberg won it. Al Gore won it for Inconvenient Truth, which I thought was just masterful. Sure, Spielberg quality. Uh, it is flattering, but it's also symbolic. I just watched it before we came down. Uh, for it to be personalized to me, uh, I want to make sure people understand that I'm just the symbol of a much larger effort. The people who are around this table, who Rob, Melissa, Gareth, who were there every day, every public employee who was out there putting the numbers together every day. Thinking of the little people. And really the people of the state who made it work, right? What they were saying on the presentation was, uh, I gave facts. They never mentioned my sense of humor, by the way. Nor did they mention any charisma or good looks or charm. They didn't mention a lot of things. But they said I gave facts. He's delightful. But it's that New Yorkers responded. And New Yorkers did respond. And that's how you go from a 50% infection rate to a 1% infection rate. Uh-huh. That's one theory. Uh, I mean, that, that is just a remarkable uh, prepared uh, speech that he gave upon uh, commemorating his achievement in the use of television. Uh, he went on to say, you like me, you really, really like me. Uh, and when he was done with that self-congratulations and false modesty, he turned his attention on to the real enemies in New York, the real problem makers in New York, uh, that would be upstate sheriffs, of course, upstate sheriffs who aren't uh, so keen to enforce his 10-person limitation order for Thanksgiving dinner. You have sheriffs upstate who have said, I'm not going to enforce uh, the law. Now, how a law enforcement officer says, I choose not to enforce that law, Uh, I believe that law enforcement 
officer violates his or her constitutional duty, I don't consider them a law enforcement officer. Hmm. Because you don't have the right to pick laws that you think you will enforce and you don't enforce laws that you don't agree with, right? That's not a law enforcement officer. Uh, that's a dictator. Upstate sheriffs are the dictators. Uh, you do have this thing called discretion. I know it's something that Andrew Cuomo is unfamiliar with, including concern about consent of the governed. And you do have sheriffs that are willing to speak out intelligently on the topic. This is not an upstate New York sheriff, but it's across the bay in New Jersey, Howell Township, New Jersey. Chief Andrew Kudik explained why he told his guys they wouldn't be enforcing these lockdown orders. Phil Murphy in the case, but what's the difference between a Murphy and a Cuomo, really, other than an international Emmy? Uh, I'm out there in the community driving around, and I see how much they're hurting. So as a police chief in charge of 100-plus police officers, uh, I felt it was just incumbent upon me just to let them know and my community know that we're not going to basically enforce some of these executive orders, which I feel are basically draconian. We all know we're not going to be used to go door to door uh, on something like that, whereas we're checking to see how many people are are gathered for Thanksgiving, especially when political activities are exempt from the executive order. Mm, Yeah, interesting notation there about what's exempt from the order. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, nonetheless, saying uh, guys like that uh, Sheriff Kudik out of Howell Township, New Jersey, they're the ones being political. Because the upstate sheriffs, what they're doing is they're being political. Uh, The no more than 10 rule people find intrusive you're telling me in my house uh i can't have more than 10 people it's none of your business what i do in my home now of course it is got laws apply in your home domestic violence applies in your home drug laws apply in your home yes it does well i'm going to celebrate thanksgiving the way i always celebrate thanksgiving right people on staten island we're having the same big family Thanksgiving that we always have. Well, uh, interesting, the idea that uh, uh, drug trafficking out of your home, domestic violence in your home, that is uh, of the same category as the number of people in your home having a meal. Huh. Uh, to those uh, individuals on Staten Island who say, I'm going to have that same Thanksgiving dinner I always have. Well, Andrew Cuomo has a proposition for you. He'll waive the requirements. He'll waive the mandates so long as you're banished from public services. I said to one person who had a conversation with somebody in Staten Island who said, I'm not following these rules. They're all baloney. I said, I'll make you a deal. I will exempt you from all the rules. You agree if you or anyone in your family gets sick, you're purely responsible. He said, what do you mean? I said, if you get sick or your family gets sick, you're responsible. You stay at home and get better. If you have to go into the hospital, you pay the bill. You find a nurse to take care of you. You find an ambulance driver who wants to drive a COVID positive person to the hospital. You're responsible. Well, no, no, no. I'm not doing that. I said, oh, see. Where to begin with uh, this Emmy Award-winning pretend governor for help? We're pleased to be joined by Carol Markowitz again. She's a columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. 
Where to begin with uh, Emmy Award winning Andrew Cuomo? Really, um, you know, uh, yeah. it was. It's really something. I I, I find the. Um, I guess maybe start at the end there with that uh, apocryphal story about the guy from Staten Island he was talking yeah, to. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. The, well, was, so, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that that story is about Councilman Joe Borelli, and there's no way that it went down the way that Governor Cuomo was telling it, that he told Joe Borelli, um, you know, you have to take yourself to the hospital. And, and Joe was like, no, no, no. I mean, absolutely no way, no how. Um, the councilman had said he will be celebrating his Thanksgiving. He's a Staten Island councilman, um, so it's telling that he mentioned Staten Island. And he said he'll be celebrating it with his extended family the way he always does. And his address is public knowledge, so, you know, send over the cops. Um, and that's it. So, obviously, Governor Cuomo was embarrassed by that and now had to concoct this insane, ludicrous story about, you know, t- telling the councilman that he'll have to take himself to the hospital, etc. But but even the message that that sends, I, I'm sorry, the the idea you have to get your own ambulance, uh, somebody right. who will transport a COVID mm-hmm. patient, somebody who will treat a COVID patient. I mean, just point of order, aren't COVID infected patients being transported and treated in hospitals uh, right. all over the country all the time? Isn't that why we're concerned about yeah. hospital capacity and things like this? Absolutely right. And and just the idea that you misbehaved and that's why you got COVID is just such a widespread nonsense right now in the last. Governor Cuomo just loves to perpetrate that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, the upstate sheriffs who are acting like dictators, uh, unlike right. Andrew Who's Cuomo. The dictator here. <laughs> it's it's wonderful no, projection I, I on his line, part. Sorry, I love the line where he says, um, "You have to enforce whatever law, and if you don't, you're a dictator." Does that apply to um, when it was against the law uh, to have an interracial marriage or to have gay marriage or? Um, any number of things that you know Governor Cuomo would be proud of the police officer not to enforce the law? Does that apply to any any of those terrible laws um, or just the ones that Governor Cuomo passes, which, by the way, are not even laws. They're just executive orders. Laws oh. require, um, you know, the, the legislator. Legislative, and he has no interest in going to them at all. Or what about, um, I don't know, things like designating your city a sanctuary city in violation of federal immigration right, law. Right, right, yes. Yep, it's okay. Exactly. It's okay to flout some those laws. Important, and some are not right. Uh, when we come back with Carol Markowitz, I want to continue this discussion uh, about uh, well Andrew Cuomo, but him as uh, definitely symbolic of something, uh, and not uh, a effective response, but symbolic of the hypocrisy of of elected officials, and something that Bill McGurn wrote about in the Wall Street Journal. More with Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were talking about the imperious celebutante of a governor in New York, Andrew Cuomo, and uh, we're rejoined by Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Uh, and Carol, with respect to Cuomo, boy, this is somebody that um, really seems to be enjoying 
uh, the limelight, having fun with it, the effort at mm-hmm. self-deprecating humor while while uh, uh, t- accepting his International Emmy Award before the uh, Associated uh, New York Press. And uh, and this is also somebody who was about to have his own Thanksgiving dinner until it seems the press mm-hmm. got wind of that and said, okay, mom, I'm not doing d- dinner with my mom and I'm not having my daughters come home. Right. Yeah, he, his mom is 89 and he would have had to travel for it. And if there's anybody that we're, we should be protecting right now, it's 89-year-olds who have to travel for Thanksgiving. Um yeah, it, it's actually, he mentioned Al Gore had also gotten the the, nomina- the award. Um, and they're actually very similar to me because I, I, I tweeted about this the other day, but this moment with COVID um, really reminds me of climate change. And the Al Gores of the world are very serious about climate change. They take it very, very seriously. It's very important. It's going to destroy the whole world. But then his house is like 10 to 12 times the carbon <laughs> footprint of the average American's house. And he flies all over the world giving his speeches that he could easily give via Zoom or whatever. Um, so, you know, climate change matters for us, not so much for them. And it's a little COVID. It's all these politicians tell us to mask up, tell us how important it is to, to really take it seriously and stay away from other people. And don't you have Thanksgiving with your family? And then they go and do whatever they want. So I feel like we should just, you know, I mentioned Councilman Varelli in the first segment. If I'm the councilman, I say, oh, no, no, yes, I will be taking it very seriously, very seriously. And then just have any Thanksgiving you want. Why have the abuse of these people saying, you know, you're killing grandma or on the climate change side, you're destroying the planet? Just, you know, say you, you're very serious about climate change or about COVID and just live however you want, just like the hypocrites do. Well, it's interesting that he talked about his 89-year-old mother. I mean, this is somebody who uh, actually hasn't uh, been particularly concerned about uh, those mm-hmm. who are uh, in the upper age groups, uh, those in long-term care facilities that represent a majority of the deaths in, in uh, the yeah. country and so many states. Uh, it's it's remarkable to me that he still gets to play this general patent right. of the war against covid Given, and I know you've written about it, the catastrophic handling of the nursing homes during the spike, uh, during the, the the height of the outbreak in the spring. Right. Absolutely. He, you know, it absolutely did not protect that segment of the population, no matter how much he talks about it now. Um, and he did it in his very dict- dict- dictator way. Um, he passed this ordinance that nursing homes must accept ner- COVID positive patients back into the nursing home. And it spread like wildfire in these nursing homes. And the numbers are, continue to be covered up in New York because we, we have this really insane way of counting nursing home deaths that many other states don't do. And we, we really don't know the whole toll of it. And the way he passed that ruling was they don't have a say. I said and they don't have a say. And that's exactly what he's doing with every other rule. So, you know, he was a dictator here. Uh, Bill McGurn had an interesting piece in the, the Wall Street Journal about this sort of hypocrisy, whether it's Newsom or Pritzker or Cuomo, so many others. He said one of the things that it tells, yes, uh, you can definitely keep moral scorn on them for all the apparent reasons. But the other thing it should say is, you know, these uh, rules that you're promoting, uh, that promoting, that you're issuing – uh, executive orders or advisories that take the essential function of a, an executive order. You know, they're just so uh, detached from 
how people can manage their daily lives. They're just unreasonable. And maybe this right. is a moment where if you find them unreasonable, you w- might consider that other people find them unreasonable and we should I- infuse a little bit more reason into the precautions we're taking mm-hmm. or we're mandating. Absolutely. You know, all these politicians who have spent the last few weeks saying, don't see your family on Thanksgiving, don't see your family on Thanksgiving. They could have spent those weeks telling people how to do it safer, how, when you should get tested, how long you should isolate, um, what you should do if you're traveling, and all of these ways that we can protect ourselves and each other. And it's not like we don't know. We're not in March where we're walking around unclear what's going on and wiping down our groceries with Clorox wipes. We have some idea of how this spreads and how to contain it. And the fact that they haven't done that, given us a blueprint for how to live a normal life, just means that they don't get it. And the fact that they continue to live their own normal life really means that they don't get it. And uh, you've also written about the schools, which, uh, you know, you're on the merry-go-round like uh, in New York, like uh, so many other urban centers with the schools are open, Mm -hmm. schools are closed, schools are open. And uh, now schools are closed despite the fact that the stated 3% positivity threshold, which is uh, sort of a uh, ridiculously arbitrary number to begin yeah. with, but, but, but even still, mm-hmm. that's the standard you set. Schools are closed despite not uh, eclipsing that threshold. Right. Uh, well, so the state, so Governor Cuomo and Bill de Blasio, both Democrats, have a really fun, um, you know, hateful relationship going, which has been incredibly difficult during covid and they use different data. And that's where we are in New York, where months and months into this thing, the city and the state use different data. And it's absurd. Um, but ultimately, Governor Cuomo controls the schools. And so he's letting Bill de Blasio kind of flounder right now and deal with the union, teachers union on his own. Um, but ultimately, Cuomo is the one who says whether schools are open or closed. So this pretense that, oh, he would really like schools to be open, but, oh, you know, Bill de Blasio doesn't, you know, has the say is ridiculous. He told us in April, I, op- I close the schools and I open them. And here we are in November and suddenly he's unable to do that. Well, it provides a real opportunity for him to middle de Blasio and the teachers' unions, right? So to, to exactly. say I'm, it's de Blasio's fault, but I'm not going to anger the teachers' unions by coming over the top. Absolutely. That's exactly what he's doing. He's able to let de Blasio deal with it on his own because he knows how hard it is and how he doesn't want to have to make these tough decisions. It, it, to, to me, this is perhaps the most remarkable uh, lockdown uh, COVID-related policy is the schools. The overwhelming evidence, the the issuance of kids should be in school from the CDC and all of the experts that they otherwise genuflect before, and yet there's no give. And the no give, how else do you explain it other than the teachers' unions and that the adults in charge of the system, the real people in charge of the system, the teachers' unions, are going to do it on their terms uh, no matter what parents and, and kids want right. or need? That's absolutely right. In areas where the teachers' unions are not as strong, their schools are open full-time. Um, in the major cities where the teacher unions basically decide who gets elected and who doesn't, the schools are closed. Pretty straightforward. Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, Rudy Giuliani appeared on uh, Lou Dobbs' program yesterday to talk about, uh, well, the, the statement uh, on Sunday night uh, distancing the Trump le- campaign legal team from Sidney Powell as somebody who's pursuing pursuing her investigations separate and distinct from the Trump campaign legal team. And, and Giuliani was asked about that, sort of just walked past it, saying we just have different legal theories, clearly. Uh, but Giuliani did c- convey an understanding of the urgency of the timelines the campaign is on. Oh, de- deadlines are urgent, no question about it. Uh, uh, there isn't a lot of time, but there's time. And and the, f- and the fact is that the facts are there. We just need to get them uh, before a trier of fact or before a court that will be fair and we'll listen to them. I mean, the court, the court in Pennsylvania cut it off without listening to a single fact. And I don't know how, how the judge could have concluded that the facts aren't substantial when they haven't even been presented yet. <laughs> they're really kind of and on a motion to dismiss well, you're not supposed to consider that so yeah unfortunately we haven't yet got a, well, gotten a fair decision we will we got to be a little patient one fair decision one good hearing and this will turn all around one good hearing and it'll all turn around uh, maybe the third circuit court of appeals uh, appealing that uh, they granted an emergency review from the third circuit uh, in response to that district court decision Giuliani was referencing. Uh, one of the other members of the Trump campaign legal team, Jenna Ellis, was on MSNBC dealing with Ari Melber and basically starting from the premise he was in the interview that you can't overturn the election. So what are you actually doing? And she tried to give an explanation and say, well, if you're not going to change the vote to the recount, what is the point? I, that's the real question. I don't think it's been answered because we've never had in the history of America as many mail in ballots as we have in this election. Absolutely. Recounts can change this election. Our lawsuits are all about election integrity. And we're making sure that we put this together as one uh, big lawsuit to make sure that election integrity is preserved in each of these states. If you look at what happened on the ground in each of these states, there is massive election official fraud by going against the will of the state legislatures to change the election results in those states and altogether, of course, this is outcome determinative. And every single American should want us to be able to present that evidence in court, which consists of thousands of pages of witnesses that are voters, that are election officials, and that As you absolutely know, the shows- For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Where do you uh, put Trump's satisfaction with his legal team and um, the Republican Party, at least the Republican Party is constituted on the Hill, their their uh, forbearance with respect to his legal team and these challenges? Well, I think as the legal losses continue to mount, just objectively speaking, number one, Hill Republicans are beginning to lose their patience. And number two, you know, the president can't be very happy with with what's going on right now. Now, uh, clearly, uh, his legal team has been making the argument that if they just find the right forum, they will be able to fully, uh, you know, reveal all of their evidence and they'll get a fair hearing and things will turn around. That's been the, the argument Rick Giuliani in particular has made. And maybe that is true. There just isn't really any evidence based on anything that's happened up to this point that instills a lot of confidence. So you're starting to hear congressional Republicans even before the GSA 
uh, announced that they were going to uh, do a formal transition, be, become supportive of a White House transition process and, and just sort of uh, moving on. And I think for some, the turning point was Sidney Powell. Uh, there, were, there was the perception that, that, that what Powell was alleging went beyond just questions about the mail-in balloting process to a whole new elaborate conspiracy for which she really wasn't providing uh, much in the way of evidence. And certainly not only uh, did the mainstream press uh, feel that way, but also a, a lot of conservative commentators did. So that, I think, uh, started a lot of Hill Republicans down the process of maybe uh, backing away from this effort. Yeah, I and mean, not to mention her accusing Georgia Governor Brian Kemp of accepting bribes without evidence, which is just a, a wildly reckless thing for anybody to do, but particularly right. somebody who is a former federal prosecutor. She just behaved bizarrely um, in the last couple of weeks, as far as yeah. as far as I'm concerned. And right in the middle of a, of, of two, not one but two special elections and in, in runoff elections, that is in Georgia, which will determine whether Republicans continue to control the Senate. So to demoralize the Republican voters in Georgia while that is going on uh, certainly doesn't uh, serve the interests of the party. So there's, there was a lot of uh, concern with that. And I think it undermined, uh, among elected Republicans, it undermined confidence in the Trump uh, legal uh, effort initiative uh, entirely. Speaking of demoralizing, I, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the big tech. We've sort of lost uh focus on big tech and their ability to manipulate, to influence uh, elections, including the one on November 3rd. Bob Epstein, the Harvard-trained psychologist, was on with Tucker Carlson last night with some of the results of his research, which has been years long in the making. We'll start there with Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor. Right after. Is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And as I mentioned before the break, uh, Robert Epstein is a Harvard trained psychologist. He testified in the Senate subcommittee back in July of 2019 on big tech and the ability of Google through their search engine algorithms and Facebook, uh, similarly to uh, influence elections by what they allow and do not allow people to see what the search results return in the case of Google, for example. He said uh, back then that in 2016, big tech moved between two and 10 million votes for Hillary Clinton based on his research. Now, remember, this is a gentleman who is a Democrat, Hillary Clinton voter in 2020, not a Trump in 2016, not a Trump supporter in 2020, as he said uh, to Tucker. Here's, um, what he says about what Google specifically did uh, this cycle and uh, the amount of uh, you know, researchers he had deployed to amass the evidence to support his contentions. Well, a couple of things uh, that we've looked at so far. First of all, we, we had 733 field agents in three key swing states this year, uh, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. And we preserved more than 500,000 ephemeral experiences uh, that's a lot. That's about 30 times more data than we got in 2016. And we're finding a couple of things that are pretty clear. Number one is that Google's search results were strongly biased in favor of liberals and Democrats. This was not true on Bing or Yahoo. 
the bias was being shown to pretty much every demographic group we looked at, including conservatives. Uh, so in fact, conservatives got slightly more liberal bias in their search results than liberals did. How do you account for that? And then we also found what seems to be a smoking gun. That is, we found a period of days when the vote reminder on Google's homepage was being sent only to liberals. Not one of our conservative field agents received a vote reminder during those days. The good news is, uh, on that fourth day that we were monitoring, we went public with some of our findings and Google backed off. They literally shut off that manipulation that night. And so for four days before the election, they were showing vote reminders to everyone, finally. And so quantifying the impact? Imagine the effect. What have you measured the effect of this manipulation had on the outcome of the election? Well, there are multiple manipulations here. We were also monitoring YouTube this time and Facebook and Bing and Yahoo. Uh, the bottom line at the moment is that these manipulations, the ones that we've so far quantified, uh, could easily have shifted at least six million votes in just one direction. That's the bare minimum at this point that I'm confident of. The maximum, we haven't even begun to, uh, to estimate that yet because we have so much data to look at. For more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, Republicans have had any number of hearings with the big tech CEOs, even one just a week before the election, and there's been a lot of rhetoric spent on this issue. And here we have Robert Epstein, a Democrat, saying again, just as they were able to influence and move votes in 2016, they did so in 2020, perhaps in a way that was determinative. Yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon, especially when you look at the fact that a lot of Russian interference in the 2016 election was alleged to be Facebook ads and things on the Internet swinging public opinion. And yet a lot of the same people who, who bought that idea don't buy into the concept that big tech could be influencing the election in favor of Democratic candidates, or, or even that the idea that it's possible for these big tech platforms to really be that influential in, in the election. So people tend to not really believe that until they think it, it's having influence against them and their favored candidates. But it, yes, it's become a, a major issue to Republicans. You've seen a lot of scrutiny on it on Capitol Hill. A big problem, I think, though, is that there really hasn't been a satisfactory solution uh, that's been proposed. You know, right. on the one hand, you know, there are those who say, well, come up with free market alternatives to these major companies, but it's hard to envision how you very easily come up with a, a free market alternative to Google. I mean, it, it, Google ended up killing most of its uh, competitors who a decade or so ago did exist. And Parler, I think, shows the limits of what competition to Twitter could do. Yet at the same time, empowering an FCC, Republicans are only intermittently going to be able to control to, to have a, a heavier regulatory hand. Uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily seem like the, the most satisfactory solution either. So it's clearly a problem, uh, but it's a problem still in search of a solution. Yeah, and he, I, we, solution anyway. yeah we spoke with uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn on the show yesterday, and, and of course she's filed legislation to address the Section 230 protections that big tech enjoys and their support for that among Josh Howley and some other Senate Republicans. But you've got a problem. Not only do you not necessarily have all the Republicans on board, you of course have Democrats, including in the House, uh, that during these hearings that have been held, are really questioning uh, the big tech CEOs from 
the diametrically opposite position of saying, well, why aren't you censoring more? Whatever <laughs> conservatives right, say, why are you censoring so much? So, you know, it seems like it's going to be difficult for Republicans to have their way when it comes to anything that is satisfactory I think it's and constitutional. And constitutional you know, within the First Amendment. You know, when you look at Facebook, obviously conservatives have a lot of complaints about Facebook, but Democrats will always be quick to point out how much success conservatives have had getting their content shared on that platform. Now, I think a lot of that reflects just the demographics of who is using Facebook. But, you know, there's no question that these tools, while in some ways biased against conservatives, have also been pretty useful to conservatives in getting their message out and getting conservative news content out. It's it's sort of an interesting thing. And the Internet started to eliminate some of the gatekeepers that we had uh, in the media, you know, some of the people who sort of uh, stand there and decide what is and what isn't credible. Uh, and now you're seeing some efforts to try via the Internet to reintroduce uh, some of those gatekeepers. And, you know, having the gatekeepers creates the same problems that it did, you know, when, when we were doing more traditional media in that the gatekeepers may limit discussion and, and to the degree that they're eliminating legitimate perspectives. But obviously, when you get rid of the gatekeepers, you, you do run the risk that everybody is going to live in a fantasy world of their own creation. And, you know, how do you how do you sort of manage those two uh, competing goals of, you know, having accurate information out there in a free marketplace of ideas, but also just not letting it become, you know, the, the lowest a race to the bottom and, and to, to the most crazy uh, things imaginable of being what everybody consumes. He is Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And with uh, Joe Biden making uh, cabinet uh, selections public, I point you to an excellent piece by David Harsani over at National Review. Uh, the return of the blob. Very much, as I said last week, Biden living down to expectation, which is Obama staffers pursuing Bernie Sanders policies. And that certainly includes in the international arena. But the whole idea is return to normalcy. Let's go back to the uh, halcyon days of the Bi- the uh, Obama-Biden years, where we had uh, all of these international sophisticates and positions of status and influence. And so uh, Harsani recalls how the Guardian describes, uh, and <laughs> I mean, it really is, Anthony Blinken, Blinken who's uh, going to be uh, Biden's Secretary of State. He went to school in Paris where he learned to play the guitar and play football, soccer, and harbored dreams of becoming a filmmaker. Before entering the White House under Barack Obama, he used to play a weekly soccer game with U.S. officials, foreign diplomats, and journalists. And he has two singles, love songs titled Lip Service and Patience, uploaded on Spotify. All those contacts and urbane bilingual charm will be targeted at soothing the frayed nerves of Western allies, reassuring them that the U.S. is back as a conventional team player. The foreign policy priorities in the first days of the Biden administration will be rejoining treaties and agreements that Donald Trump left. That's uh, ostensibly a news piece. 
Harsani's translation. No longer will our foreign policy elites play to the boorish slack-jawed yokels who listen to AM radio and watch football, actual football, in Kansas City. Blinken, cosmopolitan, polyglot will kick around soccer balls with well-bred diplomats on weekends. And on weekdays, he will rejoin treaties and agreements ratified by the European Union and China, but not by the United States Senate. We are indeed headed back to Obama-era normalcy. Yes, quote-unquote normalcy. Uh, for all of that uh, mellifluous rhetoric coming from the D.C. press corps in support of the Biden selections to return to the Obama quote-unquote normalcy, David Horowitz has a, a very good piece that was posted over at our friend uh, John Hinderaker's Powerline blog uh, reminding Americans what they're actually in for, and what they should realize they're in for, more and more Americans realizing it. Uh, Horowitz, the original radical son, writes, Democrats are not Democrats. They're totalitarians. They have declared war on the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Electoral College, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the election system, and the idea of civil order. They have called for the Republican president of the United States to be deplatformed and jailed. Their obvious goal is a one-party state that criminalizes dissent. To them, support for such basic necessities as borders and law enforcement are racist. If you oppose their efforts to legalize infanticide, they will condemn you as enemies of women. And if you make videos of their confessions to selling body parts of murdered infants, they will, like Kamala Harris, throw you in jail. Progressives are not progressives. They are reactionaries. They are out to abolish liberal value systems and create a status hierarchy where race, gender, and sexual orientation define and confine you to an unalterable place in their new social order. If you are white or male or heterosexual or religious, you are guilty before the fact. Understand what Democrats are, totalitarians, progressive, reactionaries. This is um, a Marxist revolution with sort of establishmentarian facade uh, on it, as Horowitz argues in Fighting Words. Um, worth checking out both of those pieces, both Harsani and Horowitz. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danprofshow, including Parler. The question with respect to the vaccines coming online, soon to be thought, uh, the head of Operation Warp Speed saying uh, recently expects the first Americans to be inoculated with uh, an approved vaccine by December 11th or 12th, just a couple of weeks away. Pfizer, Moderna, Oxford, AstraZeneca. The question is, uh, what's the basis for distribution of the vaccine in the initial rounds, where obviously you will have fewer doses than you need, and also just the rank prioritization of the distribution for what you do have in stock. Should it be based in equity or efficacy? The equity argument is being made by a lot of identitarian politicians, including our very own Governor Jellybelly. One of the big concerns that I have is making sure that, that we do this with an equity lens. And that includes not only people of color, but you know, rural communities, places that often are left out and left behind, forgotten. Um, I want them uh, to be significantly considered. And so the question again, equity or efficacy? We're going to let identitarian politics drive the distribution, or is it about saving as many lives and using the vaccines in their highest, best form. The efficacy argument uh, made by Tyler Cohen over at Bloomberg 
Tyler Cohen, George Mason University economics professor, said uh, vaccine distribution should not be fair. A central yet neglected point is that vaccines should not be sent to every part of the U.S. Instead, it would be better to concentrate distribution in a small number of places where the vaccines can have greater impact. Say, for the purposes of argument, you had 20,000 vaccine doses to distribute. There are about 20,000 cities and towns in America. Would you send one dose to each location? That might sound fair, but such a distribution would limit the overall effect. Many of those 20,000 recipients would be safer, but your plan would not meaningfully reduce community transmission in any of those places, nor would it allow public events to restart or schools to open. That's starting from the premise that schools shouldn't be open regardless, but just play it out. Or you can choose a one town or well-defined area and distribute all 20,000 doses there. Then you protect 20,000 people with the vaccine. The surrounding area becomes much safer. Children can go to school knowing most of the other people in the building had been vaccinated. Shopping and dining would boom as well. And then you radiate out from there. So, for example, he uses if you start in Wilmington, Delaware, then you radiate out from Wilmington, Delaware. Sort of the oil spot technique. Go from a position of strength to outlying positions of weakness as you expand. So what should it be? And this is essentially after the prioritization of frontline healthcare workers and perhaps even people who are vulnerable. Although the vulnerable population, that really gets into definition too, because I mean, if vulnerable means you just have a comorbidity, I mean, that's going to overwhelm the amount of vaccine doses available as well. If it means somebody over 70 with a vulnerability or with a comorbidity, that's something different. For more on all of this, these complicated questions. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Darcy Bryan, healthcare policy expert at the Mercatus Center. Dr. Bryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So um, what about uh, this discussion that uh, we're having and that, that needs to be had, equity versus efficacy in distribution? I think it's absolutely a very important question. I think it's something that I've thought quite a bit about. But ironically enough, the very practicality of the kind of vaccine that we've had produced by Pfizer and Moderna that's um, passed the phase three studies and is now going to the FDA for licensing and approval, I think is going to answer that question in its own way, just based on how the vaccine is needing to be distributed in super cold freezers and stored. Because the minute the, uh, the temperature thaws and the vaccine loses its efficacy or its ability to help people. And so automatically you've got urban centers favored because large hospitals, academic centers are going to have the equipment to store the vaccine and are very vulnerable in rural areas are going to really struggle with how to get that to their, their patient's population. So I think because Operation Warp Speed focused and poured a lot of money into safety and efficacy, which is great, but less focus was on the practicality of distribution in terms of how the vaccine gets stored. So the vaccine that we have is very effective, but it's also very fragile. Sure. Okay, but setting that aside, you're still going to have politicians saying, "Oh, we, you know, you have a higher incidence of COVID and COVID-related deaths among the Black American population, among the Latino American population, and so we need to provide vaccines to those communities in some sort of proportional way." And then, of course, that prompts, okay, well, even if we were going to do that, uh, we were going to set aside, say, 12, 20 percent, 25 percent, whatever the number is, for the black community. Okay, so where does that go to Detroit, Atlanta, Chicago, New York? The politicians aren't thinking this through, so intelligent people like you need to do so on their behalf. (laughs) 
Well, I, I would say that the CDC has basically asked the bioethicists to really sit down and think this thing through. I like the National Academy of Science, what their recommendation was, which was four phases of distribution. But the main focus was on fairness and transparency and equity. What I will say, and just as a, in a parentheses comment, is that there was an interesting article that came out that was basically saying, based on mathematical models, if we targeted the super spreaders, the people who are most social among us, and vaccinated them, then we would have a really large impact on preventing transmission. So there's two ways of focusing in on vaccination. One is who's going to be transmitting it the most, and uh, the other one is on the most vulnerable. And traditionally in this country, we've focused in on the most vulnerable. So um, the National Academy of Science basically said, hey, phase one, high-risk healthcare workers, those with comorbid health conditions, you know, the, the ones who are super vulnerable with their underlying health, older adults and folks in nursing homes, um, they should be getting it first. And then basically a staged release based on phase two with teachers and critical workers, people who are critical for national security, those who are moderately in poor health, people living in shelters and prisons, things like that. And then phase three, young adults and children, and phase four, everyone else. What about, um, you know, again, below the fold here, these categories, there's studies out that suggest maybe a quarter of the population is uh, has a natural immunity to COVID-19 without mm. ever having been infected. There are the number of people who have had um, asymptomatic infections in addition to those people that, who were sick and recovered. And I wonder if we have sort of a heat map of concentrations of those people. So we know, for example, if it seems to be the case that this virus has ripped through New York already pretty well in the spring as compared to some other major metropolitan areas, for example, then should we prioritize those areas that have a smaller percentage of the infected and the recovered, the asymptomatically infected? I mean, I guess unless you test, you really don't have any way of knowing who's got an innate immunity. But I mean, some of the data that we do have, should that be mapped so that we're, again, sending the initial batch of vaccine doses for their highest best use? Yeah, and that sounds really rational. And unfortunately, from what I've seen from what the CDC has commented on is we don't seem to think that natural immunity holds for very long based on early evidence. And we don't really have a good way of measuring immunity still. And that's going to be a problem also with vaccinating. We simply don't know how long the vaccine will be effective for. There's a lot of unknowns there. Well, with respect to the asymptomatic, this is really interesting because back in June, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, the head of WHO's Emerging Diseases Unit, almost ended her career by suggesting that per the known research, asymptomatic spread was very rare. From the data we have, it seems to be rare that an asymptomatic person actually transmits onward to a secondary individual. And then, you know, she had to decide whether she was going to keep her position, so she recanted in part. Well, there's a study out that, of course, has got no attention, just like mass studies that don't comport with conventional wisdom to get no attention, that looked at 10 million residents of Wuhan, China. There were no positive tests among 1,174 close contacts of asymptomatic cases. This was not rare. This study in Wuhan China finds 
no zero cases of asymptomatic transmission. And so if we know some estimates, 20%, I mean, I've seen that much higher, but let's be conservative, 20% of the cases are asymptomatic in the infections. So if we know who was infected uh, and had an asymptomatic response, and we know what we know about transmission, can't we discount those areas? Because number one, you have that percentage of infected, but number two, you have people that are not likely to transmit. Yeah, and I don't know how we could practically do that given the kind of the general mindset of vaccination, which is to distribute as quickly and widely as possible. And yes, these phases are in place, but I think the thinking is it's not going to be a matter of years, it's going to be a matter of months. So in in terms of practicality and actually making those determinations and having the apparatus to make those determinations, I think that would be very difficult. So instead, it's just going to be sort of a a blunt approach by saying, here's categories of people and Uh we'll distribute to healthcare workers around the country, we'll distribute to teachers around the country, we'll distribute to childcare workers around the country because it's easy. Well, I don't know if it's going to be easy. (laughs) Easier than being surgical. Right. I think we all appreciate the bureaucratic process and it's not surgical. All right. She is Dr. Darcy Bryan. She's a healthcare policy expert at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dr. Bryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The head of New York Police Department's largest union issuing a stark warning to subway riders amid a rash of shoving incidents and so forth. The uh, message to subway owners, or subway riders, I should say, in, in New York. Uh, you're on your own. Police Benevolent Association President Pat Lynch said the politicians have made it abundantly clear that they don't want cops enforcing transit system rules, connecting the homeless with services, engaging with seriously mentally ill, or doing any of the things necessary to prevent these terrifying random attacks. That is their choice to make. But who is replacing us in these roles right now? Nobody. While our elected leaders are closing their eyes and wishing the problem away, we recommend that all New Yorkers keep both eyes wide open while in our transit system. It's nice to hear from the police department. You're on your own. But that's what a lot of families in big cities feel like. And that, I think, in part, this will have to be the product of some more postmortem, but just uh, intuition. You know, how do you explain the difference between President Trump potentially losing the presidential election while House Republicans pick up 9, 10, 12 seats? Odd. You thought the two would be inextricably tied together. They're not. And it was pickups in suburban areas of big cities, including in New York State, including in California. It's very interesting. One can't help but wonder if the defund police movement and the radicalization of the left, particularly maybe on the air, in the area of public safety, was one of the reasons people just decided that they needed to turn out some of their members of Congress who were either in bed with or appeasing people suggesting that the police should go away and we'll figure it out after we defund the police. And that includes minorities as well. Again, President Trump, 60-year high with the percentage of the black vote for a Republican presidential candidate, moved the needle up a couple of ticks with respect to Latino voters as well. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kay Himowitz uh, from Manhattan Institute and City Journal. Kay, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
My pleasure. So you wrote specifically about uh, Latino voters, and um, it wasn't as pronounced as some would hope, the increase, but it was an increase nonetheless, which is continues to be rather remarkable for somebody who the sort of assembled Western institutions called a racist for the better part of four plus years, that he increased his percentage of both the black vote and the Latino vote. It, it turns out you're suggesting that um, there's a growing percentage of Latinos in America who are more interested in sort of meat and potatoes, economic security issues than they are identity politics. That's right. What I found in looking back is that Latinos, Hispanics, I use the word, take your pick, actually, have always been a little uneasy, if not hostile, to the identity politics. And that showed up, I think, in this election. I mean, remember that when Julian Castro was running for president in 2016, he must have been banking on a large Hispanic following, and he never got more than 7% of the of the uh, primary vote. In other words, Latinos were not looking for a Latino candidate. They were looking for somebody who spoke to them on other levels. So there are many examples through the years, um, in, in recent years in particular, of Latinos who really don't think that way. And this election highlighted that they're a very diverse group, and they tend to identify more with their home country, uh, that is, you know, the Cubans are going to think differently than Mexicans about many issues, as we saw. And in South Texas, you have a large number of Hispanics who are have been there for many, many years. It's almost 90% Latino in many of the counties there. They don't think about racism very much, as mm-hmm. uh, one ex-mayor said of the area, because they're all brown. <laughs> and they think of themselves as part of a community that's basically American. Well, that, that, uh, and, and that, that, that's an important point, too, is because the way we talk about these things is sort of these monolithic categories, Latinos, black. Blacks, Asians, but it's not only different ethnicities under the umbrella Latino, but it's also different generations. Your 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 second and third generation, you may have some different attitudes about America than your first generation. That, that's right. Although I also, you know, and some of those uh, older Latinos are sold on the American dream. They have a better life here. Well, uh, many of them. So they kind of buy into the story that a lot of progressives are rejecting as a fantasy. So I think that's part of it, too. For younger Latinos, I think the picture is a little more mixed. You have kids who are moving up and going to college, and they are sounding a lot like the progressives on campus. But then you have uh, a lot of them more working class who have a lot of optimism about what this country can get them and about their economic future. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're trying to talk to them. Well, the other thing about Florida, too, which is interesting, it speaks to the Latino vote. Same thing in Arizona. And this goes back to the governor's races two years ago, DeSantis in Florida and Ducey in Arizona, school choice. And the constituency that's been mm-hmm. built in those states through school choice programs that are promoted by Republicans and opposed by Democrats because they're beholden to the teachers unions. And that's been uh, the beginning of somewhat of a realignment in that community as well, it seems. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't seen that. Uh, in the South Texas borders, that have, border counties that have gotten so much attention, the issues tended to be more about the economy. 
they were very uh, worried about the jobs that might be taken away by the move to a to a um, all green economy uh, because that's uh, oil country down there. A lot right. of people are in the oil and energy business, uh, and a lot of them work as border guards, by the way. Uh, and they're uh, not so keen on the anti-ice and anti-border guard sentiment that you hear on the left quite a bit. I, I wonder if this, uh, this something that Shelby Steele wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal applies to um, the Latino community as well. Uh, Shelby Steele writing about the inauthenticity behind Black Lives Matter. And he uh, talks about, and this is obviously not perfect because the history of black Americans is different than Latino Americans, but, but n- nonetheless, uh, tell me what you think about what he had to say here. There's an elephant in the room. It's simply that we blacks aren't much victimized anymore. Today we are free to build a life that won't be stunted by racial persecution. Today we are far more likely to encounter racial preferences than racial discrimination. Moreover, we live in a society that generally shows us goodwill, a society that has isolated racism as its most unforgivable sin. Do you think, I mean, I I know that as the prevailing opinion uh, among the elites and uh, uh, those who uh, still, I, I guess, think that uh, their victimization is a, a positive for them as some sort of pathway to power. But it, it seems to me that um, more black men in particular are starting to come around to that perspective. And I wonder if that's the perspective that a lot of Latino men and women have as well. Mm-hmm. That it is so, so some of the, you know, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're being oppressed just falls on deaf ears increasingly. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that's true. I think uh, what's also striking is um, how much Latinos are like previous generations of immigrants. Um, they chose to come here. I mean, so their, their story is very different than the black story. They chose to come here. They wanted right. to come here because they saw opportunity here. Many of them are finding it. The upward mobility rates of, uh, of Latinos are about like whites, which is you know, too low by many of our sites. I mean, uh, but 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 as high as it is for whites. So they're not treated, they don't necessarily see their future as any more diminished uh, than anybody else's. And they wanted to be here. So I think that really changes the uh, attitudes and the framework with which they're understanding this country. She is Kay Himowitz. She's uh, at City Journal and the Manhattan Institute as well. Kay, thanks for, uh, so much for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's why I'm easy. I'm easy like Sunday morning. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the study of school choice. This is our focus on school choice as really the defining civil rights issue of our time, as many have said. It doesn't matter how many have said it. To make it any less true, it's absolutely the case. Trying to end discrimination in this country based on household income and address as many states are advancing. And interestingly, over the course of the pandemic and the lockdowns and the response and the COVID relief, uh, something that is... uh, 
a silver lining in the year 2020 is the progress that has been made in advance of school choice, both from a policy perspective as well as from a educational perspective in bringing the public along and securing more public support for the notion that uh, children and parents should be able to choose their K through 12 education just as they choose their collegiate education. Choice is something that's fundamental to being an American, except in K through 12 in so many places, it's a curious exception, certainly not a performance-based one. And so we've had uh, the Supreme Court decision in the Espinosa case. We've had legislatures act at the state level with respect to federal COVID relief money, like in North Carolina, to ensure a portion of the money dedicated to schools would be accessible to private or charter schools. We've had, obviously, the leadership from Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education and President Trump in uh, furtherance of school choice, both, both federal dollars and positioning the federal government to be supportive of school choice outside of the D.C. voucher program. So there's been a lot of progress, but now we face the prospect of, number one, continued lockdown whack-a-mole initiatives by lockdown and bus politicians. In addition to that, the prospect of an incoming Biden administration where you'll have a teacher's union's flack, if not a formal teacher's union official, sent to the Secretary of Education and to try to do what can be done at the federal level to undo the progress that has been made on school choice. So are we still on offense or is it a combination of offense and defense to help us address what may be to come and how we should prepare to address it? We're pleased to be joined by Robert Enlow, President and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Dan. Yeah, and so um, I did a quick uh, a thumbnail of some of the progress over the last year. Feel free to add to that. But importantly, prospectively, if it is a Biden administration and uh, the teachers union and the administration flying in formation with the teachers unions, how should school choice programs at the, the local or state level think about what is to come and, and what they need to do vis-a-vis -vis that administration and the hostility to school choice that they're likely to be submitted to? Great question. And here's what I would say to that. Despite the potential for the federal government to be more anti-school choice, the recent elections brought about a significant step in the right direction in many states in favor of school choice, right? So states like Indiana, Florida, Ohio, Idaho, North Dakota, Kansas, Arkansas, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, all saw gains for people who were supportive of school choice. And you can expect a number of efforts in those states. What's really interesting is while school choice was not considered at the federal level in terms of the Biden administration or, or his uh, support for it, at the state level, the genie's out of the bottle. Parents want it. They're going to continue to support it. And they're going to support all this micro-schooling and micro-pods and everything they can to get an education. It's, it's really amazing what's happening on the ground, uh, Dan. And the Biden administration really ultimately, I think, will have no choice except to understand that that genie's out of the bottle. Is there a particular uh, school system, private or charter, in a particular state, perhaps, that you think is really sort of the gold standard in terms of uh, rising to the occasion of this time and providing an example for other similarly situated charter and private schools to, to follow in terms of seizing the opportunity that the pandemic provides as parents are perhaps reconsidering their, their educational choice, if you will? First of all, our data shows that 31% of parents right now are participating in some kind of a learning pods. 
We also know that 50% total are interested in doing pods, uh, and they don't want it to go back to the way it was. When you ask parents and say, hey, what would you like to do in the future? Do you want to go back to the way it was? Fully a third of them will say, no, we don't want to go back to the way it was. We want something different. So what's happening is as parents are saying from the bottom up, we want different options. And here are some schools. I mean, the reality is there's a ton of incredible things that are being done in the States, right? So Prenda Education has doubled in size. OutSchool, Prenda Education is a micro-schooling group which will work in a charter, public, or private sector, or even in homeschool sector. They are offering families a way to get high-quality education without a building. Uh, OutSchool already has 500,000 students and 10,000 teachers. There's all sorts of incredible growth. What, what's really interesting is it's happening at the state and local level, and there are a lot of good opportunities. When we come back with uh, Robert Enlow, I want to talk a little bit more about this and, and what this moment may mean for K-12 through education generally. Are we going to rethink how we actually do K-12 through education, like the way we're rethinking perhaps how we do employment in this country in so many sectors? More with Robert Enlow, President and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K through 12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Robert Enlow, President and CEO of the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. And before the break, uh, Robert was going through some of the great examples of uh, enterprises and specific schools that are rising to the occasion of, of the pandemic as parents are contemplating the education the educational options they have for their children. And Robert, I wonder if, if you know, the one of the value propositions of school choice is competition is good, makes everybody better, makes everybody leaner and meaner and more productive. You got to deliver value if you want to survive. And I wonder if uh, across the board, this new environment of competition in the wake of these lockdowns and, and parents looking for opportunities to get their kids in person for learning if maybe it's going to make private and public schools better, going to force some people who have been uh, doing things a certain way just for convenience to reconceive how they do K-12 through education. So Frank Luntz, the pollster, asked parents, what do they want? How do they want to see the future of education? Fully 75% of them said, we want schools to reimagine and rethink the way they do things. The pandemic has basically brought to the forefront a, a massive parent movement saying, let's do something different. Let's just not do it the same business as usual where you have a teacher in front of a classroom of 25 kids for the next 200 years. So the good news is your parents do want something different, and they're asking and they're demanding it, right? Uh, this idea of supplemental education, this idea of, of allowing parents to access the resources that the state puts aside for their kids to to hire tutors, to create a teacher. Like I know of one family here in Indianapolis. She's a homeless mother living in a shelter. And she said, I need something for my kid who's in the shelter with me. And so she arranged to have a learning pod brought into this homeless shelter. 
that would never happen in our traditional system, and that's a really great uh, result of the of, of what parents are saying. I want something different. So there's a lot of opportunity. I don't think this genie's back in the bottle. Uh, and the longer this goes on, the more parents are going to demand change. In addition to that, it seems to me one of the other dynamics is the uh, the politicization of everything, and some parents recoiling at. Uh, uh, schools as serving as incubators for political activists rather than as institutions that educate children to be lifelong learners and get them on their path. And I think of, for example, the 1619 Project, the effort to sort of rewrite American history that's insinuating itself in public schools. It's been in Chicago now for the better part of a year, even though the kids haven't been in school for the better part of a year. Uh, and, uh, and and parents uh, saying not only is the in, uh, the lack of in-person learning a, a problem, but also what happens when they are in-person and learning, that's a problem too. Yep. I, I you know, Milton Friedman used to say one of my favorite sayings from Milton Friedman was, if you want to know the philosophy of government tomorrow, look at the classrooms of today. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a, that should give us all pause. What should really give us pause, though, is the classrooms of today and the people of today, barely 30% of them know the three branches of government. We have a significant gap in knowledge here, and whether they know it's 1619 or 1620 Mayflower Compact, right? The answer is, is to have critical thinking about these issues. It's just not happening right now, and we need to do something different, which is why I think parents are saying enough of this. Let's do something like learning pods, and it's why choice is on the rise around the country, and it's why even I think the incoming Biden administration, just like the outgoing Trump administration and the Obama administration, school choice is going to exist long before them and long after them because parents are demanding different, different options. What about with uh, respect to the teachers and administrators? It seems to me, you know, I, I don't want to talk about teachers and administrators in, in a monolithic uh, sense either. It seems to me there are a lot of teachers and administrators that are frustrated by the union's recalcitrance to get uh, the adults back into the school and back teaching kids. Well, absolutely. But I also I think teachers are free in some ways if we do this right going forward. Like, again, here's another example. A friend of mine in, in Wichita, Kansas, has a pod where she and she and 10 of her family friends have gotten together and hired a teacher and that teacher's making upwards of $100,000 a year now. Right. Right? For that 10 group of 10 families, right? That's an amazing opportunity for some of our incredible educators who are now free to design their own lesson plans outside of the state curriculum mandates, who are free to say, this is what we think of the classroom and the activities should look like outside the guides that are, and the scope and sequencing required by all the schools, right? This is a unique opportunity. I think teachers have a, a real opportunity in the future to, to grab a hold of it and say, we don't want business as usual. Now, some parents want back in school and some kids want back in school and some teachers want back in school. That's okay. The whole point here is, is we need to create a system that's hybrid, not the system that's monolithic. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, we may look back on this if there is this uh, real uh, paradigm shift that you're describing and say when the teachers' unions at, at the height of the pandemic where parents were beset from all sides said we're not going to go back to school unless uh, you pass the Green New Deal, unless you do this and you do that, all these sorts of issues that are part of their political agenda that had nothing to do with educating kids – that, that, that perhaps will be that watershed moment that precipitated the paradigm shift when a lot of parents and even teachers and administrators realized uh, just exactly what the disposition of the teachers union is and the importance it places on K-12 through education, actual education versus their political agenda.
Yeah, so it's really interesting as we've gone through this pandemic. I couldn't agree with you more on this. And, and I think the results in st many states show that, that, that you're right, that parents are not going to take business as usual as, as, the, as the way to go. Uh, well, one of the interesting things we're seeing around the country is, is teachers who are starting to stand up with families, who are starting to stand up with micro-schooling, and, and then the, the unions are coming out like against the micro-schooling and say, well, these are unregulated, un, unacceptable things. Well, they're finally getting to the point where parents are saying, don't come in my face, I'm educating my kid. And, and I think it's a, the first time where I think our friends in the union are going to have to come face to face with what parents want and not what schools want. And it seems and, and you, all the, the, the districts that get all the ink are the big urban centers. And so you think, oh, well, because uh, Randy Weingarten can keep the New York City public schools shut down, the teachers union still has all this power and nothing's changing. Well, there are things changing below the the fold of the media coverage uh, you know new york chicago la they may be the last to go but uh around the country things are changing much more rapidly than randy weingarten for example would want to admit and even before the pandemic if you went into the sort of coffee shops in the bronx and brooklyn you would see bulletin boards full of parents saying let's get together and educate our kids or let's get a pile the tired teacher there was this is a growing movement even before the pandemic and i think you know the the teachers union has a job i don't begrudge its job it, it's but its job is not to protect the interest of kids it's to protect the interest of adults that's fine but what's happening now is parents are starting to say you're going to protect our interest or we're going to move on he is robert enlow president and ceo of the friedman foundation for educational choice robert thanks as always appreciate it oh dan nice to have nice to be here thanks for having me i appreciate you this is the dan proft show Welcome back to the show. I wanted to uh, make reference to a piece that a friend of the show, John Cass, wrote in the Chicago Tribune about uh, restaurants. It's bigger than that. No, it's bigger than Chicago. It, the uh, column really provides sort of a quintessential example of what's happening in so many cities and states around the country. And it uh, comes from an interview that Cass did with a friend of his, a restaurateur in Chicago named Jimmy Benakis, who uh, ran big restaurants in the city of Chicago, now owns... Uh, one or, uh, in the suburbs, he said uh, something interesting, too, because this goes to what's seen and unseen when it comes to impacts of public policy, impacts of the decisions that are being made, specifically the lockdowns. You don't see the death of a dream, said Benakis. You don't see the restaurant owner with their heart cut out, losing their home they put up for collateral and all their savings. You don't see that or marriages broken under the stress. You don't see the guilt that comes with failure or depth of feeling for the employees and their kids that you've watched grow up all their lives and call you Papuli, grandfather. Uh, a good restaurant is a family, said Benekis, but most people who haven't spent years in their restaurant don't see it. And uh, Cass, uh, piling on, saying... When you what you see is a governor giving shutdown orders like Jelly Belly Pritzker in Illinois. But you don't see the restaurant owner awake at three in the morning, sitting still with the mind racing because the bank and the landlord want their money. You don't hear the silence in the home, the silence that crushes a family, weighing down a spouse and the kids. Uh, the um, interesting uh, perspective from Benakis is he doesn't really blame the politicians. He's a little bit more charitable than I would be, or frankly, I think he should be. 
uh, he uh, he's pretty optimistic he's going to make it, and he's been successful in the business, so he's got perhaps more margin for error than many do. He uh, said, um, Benakis, he's not angry at Governor Pritzker or other politicians who shut down businesses with the flick of a wrist and never scrubbed a toilet. Benakis said, they just don't understand. How could they understand? It would be good if he, Pritzker, talked to restaurant owners, actually talked to them. He said you can have outdoor dining. Well, who wants to eat in an igloo? You won't order a $50 piece of fish and eat in a frozen igloo outside. He went on to say the pot shops stay open, the liquor stores, the businesses that the state is in, and they shut down our businesses. I'm not angry at our leaders. I just want to get on with my life. And I appreciate the fact that he doesn't want to be consumed by anger. Anybody doesn't want to be consumed by anger. You just want to figure out a way forward and get get on with your life. Um, but, I mean, there is all sorts of legitimate bases for anger, exasperation, frustration. Uh, there should be a blame ascribed to politicians for the choices they made, particularly when, as is the case in Illinois, these uh, ruling class men and women of science and data make decisions that run directly counter to the science and data. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Rudy Giuliani was on with uh, Lou Dobbs yesterday addressing the departure or the separation of Sidney Powell from the formal Trump campaign legal team and also assessing the Trump legal team's chances, ultimately at the Supreme Court level, where they want to get. Uh, Our theory of the case to get to the Supreme Court, now in four places, and it's soon going to be in two others and there'll be an overall lawsuit, is uh, basically misconduct of the election in which the misconduct of the election involved deprivation of constitutional rights for the president. uh, For example, uh, in one part of the state, you could fix a ballot, Democrat part. Other part part of the state, you couldn't fix a ballot. One part of the state, the ballots were examined. Another part of the state, they didn't care if the ballots were examined. In in Pennsylvania, there are 680,000 unexamined ballots that virtually were put in secretly by Democrats alone. That's outrageous. (laughs) <laughs> that is misconduct of the election. Elections are supposed to be conducted under the auspices of the laws passed by the legislature. And in fact, they made a mockery of it in Pennsylvania. The only place maybe worse is Michigan, and particularly the city of Detroit. Uh, the city of Detroit probably had more voters than it had citizens. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but uh, all you have to do is look at, at statistical data, and you can see that the fraud was rampant and out of control. That was similar to what Jenna Ellis said on MSNBC as well, one of the other formal members of the Trump legal team, in terms of the the belief that they still have the cases based on the constitutional issues that are triggered in places like Pennsylvania to obtain the remedies they seek that would change the outcome of the election. Uh, meanwhile, over on the other side, speaking of MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, she uh, really is uh, ready, obviously, to move on with the Biden administration. Of course she is. Uh, except to the extent that uh, she is wanting to have a bit of a reckoning for the Trump legal team for violating these norms she said existed 
uh, up until the Trump administration with respect to the outcomes of election. She is speaking to NAACP Legal Defense Counsel Sherilyn Eiffel, saying this. One of the things that I'm concerned about is what the Trump administration is going to do during this lame duck period and in the transition to try to set the place on fire, proverbially, as they go. But I think a lot of people are also worried about these tactics, both by the president and by his campaign and by Republicans who support him, that after an election, elections officials are now subject to lobbying, subject to pressure, subject to enticement or um, or threats in a way that should get them to do whatever their party or the party in power or anybody else who has an effect in terms of influencing them can get them to do. I want that not, I want to go back to that not being a norm in our democracy. I'm worried that now that the Trump administration has set this precedent, it will be. And it feels like the only way to stop that becoming the new normal, at least in Republican politics, is for some people to go to jail for it or to feel like they are going to get in trouble if they got get caught doing something like that. Is that the right way to think about it? Uh, and of course, she got an amen from the NAACP Legal Defense Council. Is that the right way to think about it? Uh, sending the attorneys for the president to jail because you don't like the fact that they're pursuing their legal rights, however competently pursuing their legal rights nonetheless in courts of law. Eh, interesting. That's yeah, a real thought experiment. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Lord, contributing editor to the American Spectator, former aide to Reagan, to Jack Kemp, former CNN commentator, and author of Swamp Wars, Donald Trump and the New American Populism versus the Old Order. Jeffrey Lord, thanks for joining us. You betcha, Dan. What a time we live in. <laughs> yeah, apparently um, Rudy and uh, Jenna Ellis and, and others may need to get their own counsel if uh, Rachel Maddow would have her druthers. Well, you know, Rachel conveniently ignores something, and I'm talking to you from my home in Pennsylvania, which is mm. dead center in all of this. And just to give you a little quick history, in May of this year, the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania indicted a Philadelphia Democrat election judge because in three different elections, Democratic primaries in, in most cases, he stood by a voting machine and when people weren't looking was going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching for a candidate that he was paid to do that for. You can't make this up. Pennsylvania, Philadelphia in particular, has a very long and very seamy reputation for this kind of thing. And you could see it at work in this election. First, they didn't let counters observers in, but then they show you these television pictures and they'll say, oh, well, they're in the room. Well, they're in the room, all right. They're behind bike racks, six feet in distance. And at first, it was more than that from the counters station. So you can't possibly see the ballots. I mean, this is just outrageous, and it's it's standard practice in Philadelphia. There, there's a there's a a problem here, right? So, on the one hand, you say, well, it's you got to be pragmatic, and if what you're suggesting doesn't rise to the level of altering the outcome, you know, the eighty-three thousand vote margin in Pennsylvania, then it's moot. So, you know, if they fraud it big enough, then you can't get to the threshold of proving fraud that big, and so then they win because you can't clear that threshold. I mean, that's essentially what the Trump campaign is arguing. And even if that's sort of unfair, sounds unfair on its face, the bottom line is still the standard that needs to be met and they need the the issues like taking ballots for three days after the election like the curing of ballots in some counties and not others. They, they need those issues before the court, but they also need to get a handle on just exactly how many votes we're talking about so they can make that pragmatic argument uh, in their petition for cert as well. 
Yes, that's right. And at least as I understand it from Rudy and Jenna and these others, the the number is about 682,000 votes in Pennsylvania. And I mean, and there was two ways, they're suggesting there's two ways of doing this. One is the kind of thing that we were just talking about, which is standard voter fraud, dead, you know, dead people voting, uh, this kind of thing. And the other is through the machines. And in researching this myself, you know, I find stories in the New York Times, not exactly a uh, right-wing newspaper, that go back to uh, 2006. U.S. investigates voting machines Venezuela ties. <laughs> That's over a decade ago. And it goes in a chapter and verse on this kind of thing. You know, this is a real serious problem here. And they've had problems with these Dominion machines, D- Dominion being the name of the company, in one election after another, South Carolina, I mean, on and on, I could go through a whole list here. Right. And, but and that is a problem. With respect to Sidney Powell, and even though, again, she's a serious person, has amassed an impressive record as a federal prosecutor and appellate attorney, she has been saying a lot of things over the last week or two that she can't prove, that she hasn't proved. And I'm not even talking about Dominion voting systems or Smartmatic. I'm talking about making assertions like Brian Kemp accepted bribes from Dominion voting system. I mean, it's just that's not something a formal federal prosecutor says in public without the evidence at the ready right. to connect the dots. I mean, she's she's been I, I can see that she's a serious person and all those things, but she's been really reckless the last uh, week or so. Well, even Rush Limbaugh has expressed some concern here. And the bottom line for somebody like Sidney Powell is, you know, if you've got a really good reputation, you don't want to do anything that's going to cast doubt on that. And Mm -hmm. until she comes up with this evidence, which she says she has tons of, and puts it out there, I mean, there's going to be a question. There's just no question about that. Yeah, and I mean, how did you interpret the formal separation, uh, the the need to issue a statement without context that just says she's doing her thing, we're doing our thing? That's, you know, 72 hours after a press conference where they were doing their things together. Yeah, I frankly was a little baffled by this. I mean, there has to be something going on, and I assume we will eventually find it out. What it is, I couldn't begin to tell you. I just know that the Trump campaign, I, I, along with others, get these invitations to be on briefing calls in the late afternoon and no indication there about the the split. Do you have uh, any doubt that if uh, Trump exhausts his legal options, particularly with respect to the constitutional issues that uh, Giuliani and company are pursuing, that, uh, that he will acquiesce and there will be a peaceful, orderly transition of power? No, I don't have any doubt about that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he, he say, you know, in essence concedes and announces for president in 2024 in the same breath. <laughs> uh, what's, your, what's your sense as you see some Republicans uh, folding up their tents for Trump and saying, you know, it's time for him to concede and move on? Uh, obviously, you have the Georgia Senate runoff and that all eyes will be on that through November 5th and then come what may. But um, assuming that Trump does not overturn the results, what's, where does the Republican Party go in a Biden administration? Let's say it has a Senate majority. Well, I, I do think that Donald Trump continued a trend that my old boss, Ronald Reagan, began, which is, in essence, making the Republican Party a blue-collar workers' party, if you will. And I think that that trend is going to continue no matter who emerges as a potential candidate other than Donald Trump in 2024. The party itself has has continued this change from the Reagan era, uh, which I find all to the good here. And so everybody's going to have to adapt as best they can. 
but they certainly shouldn't be giving up the ghost at this point. Uh, uh, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this because this is seriously about the integrity of the American election system. And if we lose faith in that, we're, we're in big trouble. He is Jeffrey Lord, contributing editor to the American Spectator, former aide to Ronald Reagan, Jack Kemp, former CNN commentator and author of Swamp Wars, Donald Trump and the New American Populism versus the Old Order. Jeffrey Lord, thanks for joining us. You bet. Anytime. Happy Thanksgiving. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show uh, over the last couple of months you've had real progress in terms of middle east peace with these normalization deals that have been struck between Israel and Bahrain, Israel, United Arab Emirates, Israel, and Sudan, brokered by the Trump administration in part. And there was a report that um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took part in a secret meeting this week between Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the first known summit between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. The leaders, this is reporting in the Wall Street Journal, Discussed several issues during the meeting uh, on Sunday, including normalizing ties, addressing Iran, a shared shared enemy of the two nations. lasted a couple of hours. Uh, Pompeo tweeted out pictures of his meeting with the crown prince and uh, and also a a visit to Israeli settlement in the West Bank. So that would uh, indicate perhaps some real serious progress in normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, except... A Saudi Arabian foreign minister denied the meeting took place, saying, I've seen press reports about a purported meeting between the crown prince and Israeli officials during the recent trip by Secretary Pompeo. No such meeting occurred. The only officials present were American and Saudi, said Prince Faisal bin bin Farhan al-Saud on Twitter yesterday. So let's see if we can get um, some clarification on this apparent controversy about what did or didn't happen. To help us with that, we're pleased to be joined by Fahad Nazir, who is the spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Mr. Nazir, a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. So um, did this meeting occur or did it not occur? So Prince Faisal's statement was unequivocal and it was very clear. And he was there at the meeting himself, and he said no such meeting occurred. Not only that, but he issued an an additional clarification to a Saudi media outlet, Al-Arabi, also yesterday, saying that he personally received and bid farewell to Secretary of State Pompeo in the airport in Neom and attended the meeting with the Crown Prince, and there were no Israelis present. How um, How did the Wall Street Journal and other outlets get it so wrong, do you think? Well, I'm not sure, but I think it's it's important not to lose track of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture says that the kingdom's position on the Israeli-Palestinian dispute has been consistent for many years. In fact, it was the late King Abdullah who introduced the Arab Peace Initiative at the Arab Summit in Beirut all the way back in 2002. The initiative was endorsed by all 22 member states of the Arab League, and it essentially offers Israel normalization with all of these nations in return for a just and comprehensive peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians based on a two-state solution. So that offer is still on the table, and we hope that the Israelis and Palestinians go back to the negotiating table because this core dispute between uh, the, the two peoples and two nations 
really has been the cause of so much pain and suffering in the region for many years. Does does that mean that uh, MBS would be opposed to a meeting with BB, or is that something that it's just not appropriate at this time? Yeah, we've made it clear that the core dispute has to be resolved. As I said, it's been the cause of so much suffering for both Palestinians and Israelis over decades. Not only that, but it has also allowed terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hezbollah to recruit followers and to uh, wreak havoc across the region and beyond. So it's very important that for, uh, for, this, for the region, for the Middle East, to enjoy any peace and stability, this core issue, this core dispute has to be resolved. And once that is done, as we have said and have, we have been saying for decades now, there really is no reason why Israel cannot have normal relations with the rest of the region. So how does the Crown Prince receive those normalization deals that have been struck between Israel and, and Bahrain and United Arab Emirates and Sudan? Well, obviously, these countries uh, are sovereign nations. They made decisions based on what is best for their national security interests. Uh, we obviously, we've made our position very clear. At the same time, any measures or moves towards diffusing and uh, reducing tensions in the regions are positive developments. What about uh, the prospect of uh, a renewed uh, Iranian nuclear deal if you have a, a Biden administration uh, coming in I, with, uh, uh, with, with Iran seeking nuclearization, seeking to be the hegemon in that region? Uh, how concerned is Saudi Arabia about uh, potentially a Biden administration resuscitating the Obama administration policies? Well, Iran has sought to destabilize the entire Middle East and provoke conflict for the past 40 years. It has violated practically every law, convention, and norm of the international community. It has supported militant groups around the world and backed terrorist attacks in places as varied as Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Kuwait, Iraq, Argentina, France, Germany. Even here in the United States, in the capital, in Washington, they tried to assassinate our previous ambassador uh, a few years ago. So it is the leading state sponsor of uh, terrorism. We... Uh, we essentially did back the GC, JCPOA, but we've always had reservations about the sunset, the sunset clauses. We had reservations and concerns about Iran's ballistic missile program, and we definitely have and continue to have reservations and serious concerns about its malign activities in the region. So any future negotiations, we hope that they will take all of these uh, points into account because they, they are linked. To, uh, they should be linked, certainly, to any negotiations about the nuclear file. What would it mean for the region if uh, the, the preconditions you uh, said were met by Israel and, and Israel and Saudi Arabia did establish official relations? What, what would that mean for the region going forward? Well, as I said, I think it would certainly um, reduce tensions uh, in the region. The, the, the score dispute has been the source of a lot of uh, pain and suffering, and it, Israel does have a lot to, to offer. It has uh, thriving sectors in, in security, in defense, in uh, agriculture. They are they have their leaders in technology when it comes to water preservation and water desalination. There's obviously a lot of history there in Israel and in Palestine, so they have a thriving or should have a thriving tourism uh, industry and sector. So once, as I said, once that core uh, dispute is resolved between Israelis and Palestinians. There really is, you know, the sky's the limit, as they say. Mm. Uh, and 
Your assessment of uh, the Trump administration and, and the relationship that uh, Saudi Arabian government enjoyed with the, the Trump administration during his uh, his first term. Right. So Saudi Arabia has has and continues to have excellent relations with the uh, current administration. Uh, I think President Trump and his administration appreciates the constructive role that Saudi Arabia has played in pushing back against uh, terrorist groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. I think it appreciates the role that it has played in pushing back against uh, Iran and its malign activities in the region. It also appreciates the role that Saudi Arabia has played in stabilizing global energy markets. So as I said, Saudi Arabia and the United States have had a long-standing relationship that has endured for many, many good reasons. There's a political dimension, there's a security dimension, there's a military dimension between the two countries. People seem to forget that Saudi and U.S. forces have fought two wars side by side once back in 1990 when we expelled the invading troops of Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. And then again more recently in 2015 when again Saudi and U.S. troops and forces expelled the terrorist group known as ISIS from uh, Syria and Iraq. So this is a great relationship that has endured for a long time, and we certainly look forward to it continuing well into the future. Fahad Nazir, spokesperson for the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Mr. Nazir, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And you'll have to deal with pressure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, the vassals are getting restless all over the country, including in uh, Buffalo. Uh, where uh, this went viral over the weekend, gathering of about 50 business owners and their supporters inside a, a gym that had been shut down by COVID-19 restrictions, turned into a bit of a confrontation with county officials, both a health inspector as well as county sheriffs. Listen to how that went. These people actually work for their money, and they don't want to lose their livelihood. I've lost friends, Call I've lost family power. who've killed themselves. I've seen clients die because they've lost their livelihood. I'm sorry to hear that. I know you are, and I'm just a pale, I'm asking for you to guys have some compassion for the people that have lost everything. We do have compassion for people. Who okay, have well, lost you need to go have compassion out in the parking lot. But this is private property. This is, this is private property. This, this is private property. Yes, it is. It's private property. Go I get a warrant. Listen, man, this is private property. They're not wanted here. So, do your jobs. Well, her job is. Well, oh, no, no. Your job is to remove people that are not wanted here. You have a We're wanted here. Department. They're not. You She's have hiding her name tag. She had her I'm name not. It's right here. It's my name. You can see my name. They're just doing their job. There we go. You should all be wearing masks. How come I'm not doing have masks wrong. on? Don't worry about my health. My health isn't your concern. You're meant to be wearing a mask. It's a government. Okay, well, then write me up. It's the law. Okay, then then, then take me to jail. It's not the law. Then take me to jail. When the sheriff doesn't know the law. Show me the law. Well, I think we got to go Mask. You have to leave. You guys, you guys have to leave. You have to leave. Right now, you're trespassing without a warrant. Where did you hear a report? Okay, we can look at the law. 
We would like to leave. Who reported it? Who reported it? Who reported it? You know what? I don't know. Yeah, it's anonymous, right? It's anonymous. It can't be anonymous. You need to know your accuser. You need to know it cannot be anonymous. It cannot be anonymous. You don't get the right policies. You don't get to violate the Constitution. It does not matter. You don't circumvent or subvert the Constitution. Okay, Meth, you need to leave. And ultimately, they did get out. They forced the health inspector, code enforcement officer, and the sheriff's police out. Uh, what does that say about uh, where things are getting, particularly because this was precipitated by an anonymous complaint to the local government that dispatched those local government officials? For more, please be joined again by Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, uh, people's uh, nerves are getting a little frayed with these lockdown policies. Yeah, yeah quite. Uh, what, what was that all about? We're protesting the lockdown policies outside of Buffalo and uh, didn't appreciate that uh, the local sheriff's police came out with a health inspector because of a snitch call. Oh. And this is where this is this is where right. But this is where the lives of other culture goes, doesn't it? Very sad. And predictable. It it is predictable. And and it's predictable in part because of incidents like we saw last week where the same governor who said you should wear a mask after every bite of food you take. So take a bite of food, put your mask back on, bite of food, mask, is at the French Laundry having a $1,000 plate dinner with some California Medical Association types uh, and and having a good old time indoors in violation of all of these edicts that – he has promulgated. And so it says two things. One, the rules don't apply to me. That's obvious. The second thing it says is, I don't really believe this is as risky as I'm telling you it is. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. It's, it's, it's political theater. The, 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 the media and a lot of politicians have people riled up, stoking people's fear instinct. Uh, people are walking around uh, with vastly exaggerated notions of how dangerous COVID is, of who COVID strikes, and and therefore uh, we're, we're all fearful. And so politicians are responding to that. But of course, you're exactly right, Dan. Uh, Gavin, Gavin Newsom doesn't really believe. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been doing what he was doing at the French Laundry. George Orwell predicted this so well. Some pigs are more equal than others. And, and, and Gavin Newsom is one of the pigs who's more equal than others. He gets to violate his own his own edicts and his actions, as you rightly show, as you rightly say, demonstrate that he understands it's theater and not reality. He definitely is one of the pigs. I will grant you that uh, when we come back with Don Boudreau, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the underreported uh, announcement by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Uh, recalling federal funds that were not used as part of the original CARES Act, even while there is a push for yet another COVID relief package. Uh, more with Don Boudreau, economist, co-director of the program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We'll be right back. Is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, um, the Secretary of the Treasury, this is Steve Mnuchin, has sent uh, a missive over to Jay Powell at the Fed saying uh, we're shutting down, or you're shutting down, nine of the 13 liquidity facilities that were set up that are and it's set to close on December 31st, including the one to and to backstop the corporate bond market, the one for the Main Street Lending Program for small and medium-sized businesses, as well as the Municipal Liquidity Fund for state and local government bond issuers, that those facilities uh, uh, only uh, used uh, 25 of the $454 billion that were allocated, not quite to the extent, but sort of like the payroll protection program that left, I think, something on the order of $130 billion on undeployed and um, yeah the the fed is not happy about that because jay powell wants as many tools in his toolbox as possible but but this is all happening against the backdrop of a push from both parties really for more covid relief expenditures yep so first of all how inefficient must the program be when people don't take advantage of subsidized or free money uh, it, it just bothers the mind, right? And second, I know I sound like a broken record, but this so much of this is, is theater. And so the government's locking us down. It's obstructing production. It's destroying supply chains. It's destroying our way of life. And, and government, what does government do? Right? Well, we'll throw money at the problem. We'll throw money at the problem. And, and, and they're so inefficient at throwing money at the problem, they can't even get people to catch the money that they're throwing at the problem. Nevertheless, it's not stopping them. They're going to now throw more money at the problem. That's what politicians do. They throw other people's money at problems that they, the politicians, create, and then they parade around and prance around as heroes, as if they're somehow our great saviors and we couldn't survive without them. It's truly disgusting. But yet I, I, I read economists like Michael Strain, who we had on this program, over at the American Enterprise Institute, which is, you know, ostensibly a center-right think tank, saying that, uh, don't be fooled, the uh, coronavirus economy still needs some help. We still need to think about uh, targeted relief, you know, maybe on the order of uh, about a trillion bucks, including enhanced unemployment benefits and and so forth, to continue to smooth over this period of uh, at least uh, some of the states being on lockdown. Yeah, I greatly respect Michael Strain. I, I know him. He wrote a wonderful book earlier this year on the myth of the decline of, of the American middle class. Uh, he's a very good economist. I disagree with him on, on this matter. What, we, what this economy needs is not more uh, funny money, not more stimulus either from the Fed or from Congress. What this country needs is more economic freedom. We need to be released from the lockdowns. We need to be released from the hysteria the derangement over COVID, and we need to let people get back to work on their own to find out where they belong in the economy. Throwing money after this problem is not going to, not going to solve it. So on, on this, I respectfully disagree with Michael, and I do so strongly. One thing we've seen, and this, is, this has been a silver lining in this whole very dark cloud, is that the American economy is shockingly resilient. So despite taking a hammering, it keeps on. I mean, you go to your supermarkets, and they're not like they were in January, but that somehow the shelves remain reasonably full, somehow the lights continue to come on. And so it's not that we need more money from Congress. We don't need more liquidity from the Fed. We need the obstructions to disappear. And that is the only solution for a long-term 
restored economic growth that's going to deliver, keep delivering prosperity to ordinary and, and, and poor Americans, not more money from Congress, not more liquidity from the Fed. It's a bit remarkable that um, there's this uh, philosophy that persists. Essentially, they don't argue it in these terms because this isn't the best way to argue it. But we don't need an economy. We just need government spending. Yes. And, you know, look, I mean, I, I'm a skeptic of government stimulus in, in normal times. But the mistake I think Michael is making, because a lot, a lot of people do make it, a lot of people are smarter than, than, than I make it. Some of, them, some of them have Nobel Prizes in economics. That doesn't uh, mean they're smarter. They, they think about the past battles. Oh, well, you know, so we have this, we have a demand-driven recession. Consumers are, are pessimistic, so they're not spending. Investors are pessimistic, so they're not, they're not investing. Well, how to, how, to, how to get around that? Well, you prime the pump with government spending or with, we flood the, the market with more money. I don't think that works very well even in normal times, but if it's going to work, those are the conditions under which it will work. It's not going to work at all under these current conditions. The problem now is not that consumers don't want to spend money. It's not that investors don't want to invest money. It's that governments will not allow it to happen in a productive way. It's obstructing too much of it. Well, uh, I, I, you would think yeah. you would think they that they would take judicial notice of what people are actually doing. You know, my, my, this goes back to getting like modeling. Here's how we think it's going to work, and then we're just going to ignore the reality on the ground that's happening right before our very eyes. So, for example, just the migratory patterns, the 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 yeah. the hollowing out of places like New York and Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. for places like Scottsdale and Austin and Dallas and South Florida. Does, does that tell them anything? Apparently not. Apparently not. Um, again, Michael's a very good economist. I, I do respect him, but but so many economists—he's he, not as guilty as most. So many economists just look at their their, their textbook models, what they draw on a whiteboard, the equations they, they they write in their in their class notes, and they think that they somehow understand this incredibly complex, changing economy that today is operating under completely unprecedented conditions. Uh, but they have these lim- this limited set of tools, and that's what they look at, and that's what they that's what they revert to. And it's it's only it's only making matters worse. And uh, to to your point about so much of this being theater, I mean, if if it wasn't obvious, then I think Andrew Cuomo getting an International Emmy Award for the use of television during the pandemic really really locks down locks down that position, doesn't it? Unbelievable! It's it, this uh, you know the world, Dan. To me, it's just it, it, so much of this seems to be completely deranged. I, uh, I didn't think I'd live to see. The state of the world today. Yes, I, the, the great dystopian novelists of uh, the last century, the Orwells and the Vonnegut's, and they, they, their imagination wasn't fertile enough, it turns out. It seems not to have been because this is this is just a calamity, and I worry even, even if we get even if a, you know 100 percent effective vaccine gets distributed today miraculously to everyone, and suddenly people lose their fear of COVID 19. Uh, now that we've learned, now that politicians have learned that they can basically grab as much power as they want by shutting people down, by frightening them with 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 fears of disease, because look, this happens in, 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 in throughout all of human history. New diseases, new new viruses are going to emerge. This is COVID 19 is not certainly not the first. It won't be the last. So I worry about the precedent, precedent that has been set. People are going to be, be frightened into this horror that, that they're in now by politicians. I don't, unfortunately, I don't, I'm very pessimistic, as you can probably tell, about, about going forward, even after the COVID-19 is, is, is somehow passed us. He is, Don, he is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program, of the, on the program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My great pleasure, Thanks. Take care.
listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show as we close out. How about some good news with respect to Thanksgiving? Enough uh, talk about lockdown policies. Uh, This from the American Farm Bureau Federation. Their 35th annual survey indicates the average cost of this year's Thanksgiving feast for 10, where you're allowed to have 10, uh, is down 4%. Hooray, $46.90, less than 5 bucks a person. That's pretty good. I don't uh, ever cook anything. I've never cooked anything. So I had no idea how affordable a big bird is. A 16-pound turkey for $19.39. That's down 7% from last year. Lowest since 2010. All good news. Now, of course, this uh, expense does not include the personal protective equipment that uh, you may be forced to wear, depending on the nature of your family or uh, your friends, wherever you're going to be having dinner. But that is pretty good news. Uh, the shopping list for the Farm Bureau's informal survey includes turkey, stuffing, sweet potatoes, rolls with butter, peas, cranberries, veggie tray, pumpkin pie with whipped cream, of course, coffee and milk, all in quantities sufficient to serve a family of 10 with plenty of leftovers. And you can do all that for 46 bucks. That's incredible. Um, I guess I'm eating out at restaurants that are too expensive. Uh, now, on a... Um, Less happy note, uh, I should have probably done this in reverse, end on a happy note, but I'm counter. I'm a contrarian. Uh, two social workers uh, who I hope you were not afflicted with uh, having joined you at your Thanksgiving table. Uh, this is uh, some advice and counsel they have for getting through the holidays in these COVID times, surviving the holidays during a pandemic, a guide. And, you know, surviving, I love these words. This is very network affiliate uh, uh News network affiliate uh, quality pablum here, like uh, you know, wearing layers when it's cold, sort of thing. A few thoughts to help you make a decision in advance of whether you and your loved ones can have in-person gatherings. Follow safety rules if you go in person. If you choose a video conference, keep in mind it's um, uh, not like a holiday table, so everyone can talk at once. Also, keep in mind it's difficult to have separate conversations on video conference. This limits the common safety valve of getting away from the people who you who distress you and spending time with the people you enjoy most. So plan separate conversations with these people. And unless your social style as a group is enjoyably argumentative, how about just argumentative? Scrap the adverbial and in, in, uh, enjoyable. Try to set aside differences. Focus on what you share rather than what divides you. Very kindergartenish. I love being infantilized uh, in an op-ed by a couple of social workers. And... Uh, if you weren't feeling suicidal prior to this, you're probably feeling suicidal after reading this. So they have a, a, a psychiatric crisis hotline number you can utilize as necessary. And as I said, Phyllis Meyerson and Michael Friedman just hope they don't show up at your Thanksgiving dinner table. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Join us again tomorrow for our Thanksgiving Eve edition. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show.